For me, it was back in 2013, 10 years ago on May the 28th, which was the day after Memorial Day. We ended up in the men's restroom with a severe weather warning and a tornado warning for downtown Amarillo. And I made it on national TV the next day with Al Roker and with Brian Williams. I finally make it on national TV and they find me in the men's restroom. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. It doesn't matter what's going on in the news. The most important thing on people's minds when they watch the news, whether it's the morning, afternoon or night, it's the weather. It's the most contentious subject going. We want to know how to dress, whether it's going to rain or snow, how bad the wind is going to be. Sports teams can win or lose. Wars can rage and the economy can do whatever it likes. We just want to know if the sun is going to shine tomorrow. My guest today is John Harris, Chief Meteorologist at KAMR NBC Channel 4 in Amarillo. It's a dangerous profession because whenever you're wrong, people blame you for everything. But when you're right, no one says a word. After all, sunny in 75 is everyone's expected norm. San Diego for everybody, right? Oh, without a doubt. (laughs) Yeah. John, tell us your story. Where'd you go to school to study meteorology and how'd you get there? And how long have you been at Channel 4? Okay, well, I won't make this too long, but uh, I was actually born in Amarillo back in 1962. I grew up in Oklahoma, in the town of Enid, Oklahoma, and there were two things that uh, piqued my interest very early on. One was aviation. The other one was weather. The reason aviation, well, we have a Air Force base in Enid, Oklahoma as a trainer base for T-37s and T-38s. The other was weather because Garfield County, where Enid is located, would undoubtedly go under a tornado warning at least once a year. Now, it doesn't mean there was a tornado that would actually form, but there was a tornado warning for the county. When I was young, I was afraid of the weather. And as I got older, I told myself, I want to learn about the weather. I want to figure out why we have hail, why we have high winds, lightning, and of course, the tornado. So I took the long way about getting my degree in meteorology. My father had told myself, my two older sisters, that he would pay for our schooling if all three of us would get business degrees. So we all three went down to Southwestern Oklahoma State University in Weatherford, Oklahoma. I have a marketing degree with a minor in economics. I graduated in 1985 from Southwestern, went up to Denver, Colorado to work for a uh, company called ConAgra. And I was in their flower industry. I was a plant scheduler up in uh, Commerce City, Colorado, which is just to the Northeast of Denver, part of the Metroplex or the Metro area, if you will. And uh, one day, actually on June the 15th of 1988, we had three tornadoes that came down on the east side of Denver, one close to Stapleton International Airport, the other two, one north, one south. I went up on top of the flower mill, which is an eight-story building. I looked out and I said to myself, I'm still single. I've made some money. I'm going to go back to school and receive my degree in meteorology. So I went down to Metropolitan State University, which at the time was Metropolitan State College in downtown Denver. And I went to school for the next two and a half years to get my undergraduates in meteorology, applied meteorology. And after that, my mother and dad uh, were living in Emerald, Texas. I was out of money. And so I thought, well, I'm going to move down to the Texas Panhandle and just kind of hang out there until I get a degree or, or excuse me, until I get a job. My degree is meant more toward the weather service or for, uh, say, the airlines. A lot of the guys I went to school with actually ended up being meteorologists with the airlines up in Denver, United, Continental at the time. One actually went to work for um, 
NASA and was on the go no go team for the space shuttle when it was flying. So that's what my degree was for. It was more toward that, not being on TV. But just so happened, I was down here in Amarillo, Texas in 1992, and this was in May, and I happened to see this guy on TV talking about a rain gauge out by his TV station that he was measuring rain and through dead reckoning, I just made my way out to the north side of Amarillo. And that's where I started my career on TV. Fantastic. So 31 years on 31 TV. years. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. That's beginning to sound like a career now. <laughs> <laughs> it is a career. It's still a passion and I love weather to death, but uh, it is, it is honestly, I, I couldn't have asked for anything else in my life that I would like to do better than what I'm doing right now. So it's not a job. It is truly a lot of fun and it is still a passion. How did the weather come to be such an, uh, an important part of our daily lives? I mean, it's like we can't get enough of it. We all want to know about it. And is Amarillo any different from other places? Uh, I guess that's a way of saying, is our weather that crazy? Our weather is absolutely that crazy. A lot of things coming together out here on the high plains. Uh, first of all, when you think about where we're located in the state of Texas, we're up on top of a cap rock. We're 3,600 feet above sea level. So in other words, if you were in Houston and you could actually see Amarillo, we would be up on a mountain. And so being up on this plateau causes the weather to do odd things. Another geological formation that causes the weather to do odd things are the Rocky Mountains. 200 miles to the west of us, they cause the weather patterns to split, to change, to uh, uh, just do crazy things. So we happen to be in the, uh, I guess, in the direction of flow where the winds are coming over the mountains, and that will cause crazy weather over the panhandles. Also, we have basically not even a barbed wire fence between us and Canada. So cold air spills in from the north. It uses the mountains as a, as a river bank and funnels in across the Great Plains and for sure across the High Plains. So we have all of these air masses that like to meet up right over Amarillo and the Texas Panhandle. And when there's a clash of the air masses, there's going to be weather. I was uh, born and raised in the Chicago area. And of course, we've all heard about it being the Windy City, which mm -hmm. uh, I, I later learned was more about political bluster than the weather. Right. But, but Amarillo really is the Windy City, which I learned about five yes. minutes after getting off a plane in 1988. <laughs> uh, tell us some wind facts, John. I, I know you've got a lot of windy stories to tell. <laughs> <laughs> Without a doubt. Uh, yes, Amarillo is definitely one of the windiest spots in the United States. I think we may be second to Garden City, Kansas, in some respects, with how much wind we get on an average each year and how strong those winds are. But anyway, cut it. It's extremely windy out here. One of the reasons for it, again, 3,600 feet above sea level. We live in a steppe climate, which is truly one step away from being a desert. No vegetation. It's easier for the winds to basically blow. Also, aloft, we have the winds coming over the Rocky Mountains, and there's a phenomena called a Trapley wave. And what happens is the atmosphere basically traps uh, clouds aloft, but the winds will start to mix to the surface because of sunshine and gravity on the east side of the Rockies. And that acceleration to the ground from, say, 30,000 feet will basically give us a net flow of a very windy day. And also because that wind is compressing on the east side of the Rocky Mountains, it will naturally heat up. The humidity drops. And so we get the day like we had yesterday. It was a windy, warm day, and we had a record high in Amarillo. In fact, the warmest day ever recorded for the city of Amarillo, 88 degrees, eclipsing the old record of 86 coming in from 1934. But in part, the reason why it was so warm yesterday was because of the west wind. So what I like to say on TV to my viewers, in this part of the world, truly, as the wind blows, the temperature goes. West wind, downslope. We're going to have a warm day in January. 
North wind, of course, it's going to be cold because there's Canada north of us. Southeast flow, it's the Gulf of Mexico, southeast of the panhandles. Moisture starts to be transported in from the, uh, the Gulf. Or if we have all of the above occurring in maybe an hour's time, we get a variety of weather. One of the craziest days I ever had on TV with weather was in 1997. We had an Arctic front moving in from the north. We had severe weather breaking out in Randall County. So I had Potter County that was going stream, extremely cold, colder than freezing. But I had a severe thunderstorm warning out for southeast Randall County over the Paladero Canyon, close to the city of Canyon. And so I'm talking about hail to the size of golf balls. And I'm talking about blowing snow and a little bit of freezing rain in northern Potter County. And I'm thinking to myself, this is such a cool job. Yeah. So Arctic air replacing very unstable air. So from severe thunderstorms to an Arctic air mass within just the, the length of a county and a half. That, that wind is so insane at times. I, I've stood out in my property with a, one of those little handheld anemometers right. mm -hmm. uh, and, and watched it top 60 miles an hour. I mean, it's it hard can. to stand up. And, and it's, I, I often joke it's enough to make a preacher cuss. But <laughs> on the other hand, it's such an ever-present part of our lives here that if we get a calm day, we're looking around wondering, what's missing here? This is not right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on those calm days, you'll see everybody kind of leaning into the wind because we're so used to doing that to balance ourselves. But uh, the wind is a daily occurrence here. And, and again, it all has to do with the fact that we don't have any vegetation. Um, you know, the wind is basically a byproduct of when we have one air mass take the place of another one. And so it's going to be windy. Uh, we also have uh, basically uh, the, the sunshine and the gravity pulling the winds to the surface. And uh, so all of those things are coming together to uh, help give us, give us windy weather. And, and a lot of that has to do with our elevation, our proximity to the Rocky Mountains, and again, the fact that we have air masses that clash over this part of the world. In fact, a lot of times we're kind of the the beginning to severe weather for states to the east of us because we have this, this line that develops called the dry line. And the dry line is basically a line east of it. It's very humid, very unstable. West of it, we get the parched westerly winds. Anytime there is a boundary moving across the panhandles, that boundary will create wind because of the pressure gradient that forms around that boundary. What is the pressure gradient? Well, it's a wide range of temperatures and a short distance, and Mother Nature will cause wind to blow because of that. Uh, you mentioned the lack of humidity. Um, much of the time, that's what allows for the dramatic differences between morning and afternoon temperatures. I mean, we have routinely have 30, 40, sometimes even 50 degree swings Absolutely. from sunrise to late afternoon. Like mm -hmm. could be in the 30s in the morning and hit 90 in the afternoon. That That's tough. It makes it hard to dress appropriately <laughs> on some days. Uh, mm -hmm. it, and it's also hard to believe that we sit here in, in West Texas pretty much on the 20-inch line for moisture, but mm -hmm. 750 miles east of here in Jackson, Mississippi, they get 60 inches a year. How do you explain such a rapid drop-off going west? Well, again, it all has to do with elevation. Uh, we are in a step climate, whereas Jackson, Mississippi is in what's known as a subtropical humid climate. In fact, the majority of Texas is in a subtropical humid climate. So now we're getting to climatology and a step climate being one step away from a desert means we're going to have light moisture. Uh, you know, there's a reason why Amarillo is called Amarillo, the yellow city. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are located in a part of the world where we just don't receive the rain. 
So it's the fact that we have the elevation difference between us. And as you go farther east, I mean, you get into the Dallas-Fort Worth area, they're maybe 500 feet above sea level in some areas, even less than that. You get down to Houston, they're at sea level. Jackson, Mississippi is going to be maybe 50 feet above sea level. Uh, moisture takes the path of least resistance. And so if there's no elevation involved, that moisture is going to stream over that part of the United States. Also, the pressure gradients that set up. Um, whenever we have a high versus a low, Mother Nature, weather occurs because Mother Nature is trying to always balance out everything, heat and pressure gradients. So heat create the sun creates a pressure gradient. If we have low pressure over here and high pressure over here, Mother Nature says, oh, I need to balance out that low so that it equals the same as the high. So the byproduct is the wind that she sends from the high to the low. And a lot of times we are kind of caught right in the in the path of those entities setting up. So pressure gradients, the lower elevations, closer to the uh, ocean or to the Gulf, if you will, all of those things come into play as to who gets the moisture and who doesn't. Out here where we're located, again, if you, and, and I've, I've talked about this on TV, if you think about the geography of the Texas Panhandle, you go to Pampa, you go down to Clarendon, and then all of a sudden you're off to Caprock. And so when moisture makes its way toward the panhandles, again, it takes the path of least resistance. It doesn't want to come up to Amarillo. It streams east into our eastern counties. And so consequently, a lot of the times, the tornado production is also in our eastern counties or the severe weather is in our eastern counties because lower elevation, higher humidity. But it's not just the wildly varying temperatures, the erratic rainfall, and and the wind, of course. Mm -hmm. I see it in the standard deviations, which I know is a statistical term for basically the 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 range of of uh, data points around a mean. And, right. and if they're tightly packed, it would have a small standard deviation. And if they're spread all over the place, and then we got a huge standard deviation. So that dispersal basically describes Amarillo. Yeah, we've got our average highs and lows, but how many days are actually average? I mean, <laughs> it seems like we are either plus or minus 10, plus or minus 20, or even more. Like 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 that Sunday in late October when we were about 35 degrees below average for the afternoon right. high. I think it was 34 was right. the average high. It was cold. Um, why such a wide dispersal of temperature departures from the norm? Well, again, it all has to do with where we're located geographically in the United States. And I hate to keep coming back to this, but it also is because of our elevation. Again, if you don't have humidity in the air, temperatures will have a wide diurnal range. In other words, humidity will insulate the atmosphere and keep the temperature up. Whereas if there's no humidity in the air at all, once that sun is gone, the heat that you had earlier in the day is gone. And so you go from the 44 degrees up to 88 degrees in just a 10-hour time frame or nine-hour time frame. But once that sun sets, temperatures cool down very quickly. So it's the lack of moisture that governs our temperatures as to how cool we get at night and how warm we get during the day, along with all the other things that go on in the atmosphere. You know, one thing I like to remind people is that we as creatures think about the weather right here that is affecting us. But when we are forecasting weather, we're talking about a three-dimensional monster. We're talking about the surface. We're talking 1,000 feet. We're talking 10,000 feet. We're talking 20, up to 30, 40,000 feet. Everything that occurs aloft will affect the weather that we witness here on the ground. I, I think that one of the more telling statistics of a city's climate is the spread between 
its record max and its record min. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at some place like Florida, they, rarely do they ever hit a hundred, but they're always in the nineties in the summer. Right, right. They've they've had a few outlier days in the winter, but those are few and far between. But mm-hmm. in Amarillo, I, I did some digging. Um, the 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 record the spread between the record high and record low is 117 degrees. So that that's a pretty wide spread. That's impressive. I was here uh, in 2011 for the 111 degree day. That was yes. the oh that was a horrible summer. In oh June. my gosh. Yes. And I'm pretty sure I've been here for the minus six as well. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I guess when you stay someplace long enough. You, you can really say you've seen it all. So maybe mm-hmm. so in my case, but mm-hmm. that 117 pales in comparison to some other cities. I mean, take a listen to this. Garden City, the spread is 132. Mm-hmm. In Elko, Nevada, it's 150. Cudbank, Montana, it's 154 degrees. But Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, ding, 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 about 525, yeah, 525 miles north of here has a spread of 156 degrees between its record max and record min. I mean, that's the kind of stuff to drive a person crazy <laughs> and maybe even kill them. I mean, when you think really? about it, I mean, yeah. why why do you suppose people choose to settle in such harsh environs and maybe maybe more importantly and maybe a little more upbeat, what does it say about their resilience? I mean, mm-hmm. we could look at things from the perspective that only 1% of the U.S. population resides between Midland, Texas, and the Canadian border. What right. are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I think it was Jason, Jason Aldean that had a song years ago called The Flyover States. And we are definitely one of the flyover states. And it does take a hardy person to live in this part of the world. I mean, you go back to yesterday, for example, 88 degrees. That's the new November record for the city of Amarillo. We never have seen 88 in November before since records have been kept. But before that, it was in the Dust Bowl days. 1934, we had the record high of 86. And until yesterday, that was the record that Mm -hmm. stood. So back in the Dust Bowl days, we had all of these folks that were in this part of the country trying to make a living. I think it's just the the people that uh, have the hearty souls that uh, want to have land that want to, uh, you know, cut out their, I guess, their portion of earth for themselves and their family and for for all the generations of that family to, to grow up. Um, but as far as uh, living in this part of the country, it takes a hardy person. And, and you know, getting back to the, uh, the wide temperature differences and the patterns and whatnot, that all has to do once again with geography. If you're close to a mountain range, you're going to have a wide range in temperatures in the lower elevations because of the downslope, the upslope, the cold air because it settles in the valleys. Uh, And so, you know, you may be at 29 degrees here while someone that's maybe 500 feet above you is going to be above freezing. And so really just depends on where the station's located that's taking the measurements each day. Um, but, uh, when you talk about the wide range in temperatures, again, a lot of that plays, uh, to the, the, the idea that humidity or lack of humidity will drive that temperature and allow it to be really cold or really warm or both. Um, it also has to do with your elevation. Uh, there's less air molecules up here where you and I live 3,600 feet above sea level. And so there's more of the sun's, uh, energy that gets to us. And, and so it can be hotter here. Uh, up in Denver. I lived in Denver, like, you know, when I went to school there, I lived there for seven and a half years and I love to ski, but uh, going up in the mountains, there's even less air molecules. And so you have even more heat that can uh, come down and, and people get sunburned. A lot of skin cancers in this part of the world because of 
lack of humidity, lack of air molecules to to basically slow the penetration or that uh, to to slow down the the rays of the sun and the heat that's being generated. But uh, in saying that, we're not we we still breathe fine. It's just that there's not the concentration of high humidity or the the thick air masses like we have at lower elevations. I should add that we're recording this on uh, Wednesday, November 8th, and uh, we came to work in short sleeve polo <laughs> shirts today. <laughs> it we was did. great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's probably going to end soon, but oh, well, that's the yeah. way it goes, right? Absolutely. But, but since we have so many extreme weather events here from wind, hail, drought, cold, heat, all of the above, <laughs> do you have any idea of the impact of weather on the local economy? I mean, to me, it seems like the roofers are always doing well oh, here. Yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, you hate to see a hailstorm. Uh, you hate to have tornado damage. Uh, God bless the people up in uh, Perryton and God bless the, pl- the people down in Matador. They they had people that lost their lives in uh, in June. Uh, Perryton was June the 15th. Matador was the first day of summer, June the 21st. And uh, but, you know, when you look at the economic side of it, and I mean, and I certainly don't want to take any way, anything away from people's grief and from the loss of loved ones. Uh, God bless them and God bless the people around them and, and all the support that the people of the Panhandle have given to Perryton and down to Matador. We are very loving people out here and we will help our neighbor. But on purely just the economic side, when something like that happens, all of a sudden there is a new economic engine that's started because you now have to rebuild those homes. You have to repair those roofs. Uh, you have to uh, do all the different things that will help to bring money into the coffers to towns to areas of the country where maybe you didn't have that. So weather is huge for economics and for, you know, again, you talk about the roofing companies. I hate to say it where I live in Emerald, I don't want any bad harm to come to anybody, but I, I really do need a new roof. And uh, the last one I put a, last time I put a new roof on my house was in 2004 and it was because of a hailstorm that came through our part of town. And I've still got the the class four wooden shingles, which are no longer being uh, insured. And so I need a new roof. So I need a hailstorm at my house, just my house. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, that is a big economic driver for for the economy is the weather uh, because of the adverse effects that weather has on our economy out here in the Texas Panhandle, for sure, and other places where. They see a lot of bad weather, whether it's a lot of snow, blizzards, or tornadoes, or high winds, or all the above. Well, I've I've gone through two cedar shake sh- shingles. <laughs> say that fast five times. No kidding. One of those kind of trouble. roofs, yeah. <laughs> Twice in, since '89, and uh, this, after the second time, I said, "I'm putting some money with this. We're getting a metal roof." And uh, and that was the best thing ever. Uh, they said it could withstand grapefruits. <laughs> well, you know, and, and that's what we need to do. But at the time where I live in Amarillo, we actually had a covenant. Oh, And the covenant said you, you have to have the wooden shakes. And uh, that's been broken uh, okay. many times over now. So, yes, the metal roof is next on the list. But the problem is I can't talk to an adjuster and say, you know, we had a hailstorm. He says, well, or she says, well, you're a meteorologist, right? When did that hail hit? And I say. <laughs> Uh, yeah. That's my wife. I was at work in downtown Amarillo. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So uh, being a TV meteorologist comes with a lot of risks. You know, the news and the sports desk never have to worry because they're just telling us about things that have already happened. Right. You are tasked with telling us what you think will happen. And when you're right, there's no problems, right? I mean, and even when you're wrong, but the outcome was more favorable than you predicted, everyone is still calm. But 
when you are wrong in the other direction, like when sunny in 75 turns into cloudy, windy in 55, or we get a foot more snow than you said, suddenly you are on the hot seat. It's your fault. Yes. What's it feel like being in such a position? Well, I will tell you this. It seems like the the lights, uh, when they go red, they stay red a lot longer. And it seems like everybody now has the real tall pickups. They're looking down into my car and you you can just feel them looking at you. It's not really that bad. It, it honestly, uh, I think people take it with a grain of salt. They know that weather is, while it is predictable, and I want to say that it is, uh, it doesn't always occur at the moment we think it's going to occur like we thought it was going to happen. And maybe later in the day or maybe at night when people are asleep. And so that leads to the uh, phrase, oh, it's so unpredictable out here. But I feel that when we do a weather forecast, you know, we're at least getting it into maybe a two or three hour increment where we think it's going to do this, this, or this. But uh, one thing I've learned over the years is I use a lot of maybes. It could happen. It might, but we live in the Texas panhandle. So while we think it's going to do this, it probably will do that. But the the best friend to a meteorologist or to a forecaster is history because weather replicates. What we have seen in the past will happen again. And so if you are in an area of the country long enough, which I've been out here for 31 years, it does help with your forecasting because you have seen it before. And you say, ah, that's right. I've seen this setup. So what does that mean when it comes over the Texas Panhandle? Well, we have the Powder Oak Canyon. That's going to do something to it. We have the Canadian River Valley. That's going to do something to it. Um, and so that comes into your biases, so to speak, when you're forecasting weather. But it also will help you, I think, hone in on what's actually going to happen. Yes, there's days where we're out to lunch. There's not a thing we can do about it. Uh, but there's days where it all does come together. And the one thing to keep in mind, again, is when we're forecasting weather, it's not just what you're breathing, the air that's around you. It's from the surface up to the top of what's known as the troposphere. That's where all the weather occurs. That's all the way to 40,000 feet. And we're trying to figure out what a air mass is going to do from point A to point B to point C, which are the forecast as they move over the top of us. And what happens at 30,000 feet and at 20,000 feet governs what you and I actually experience here at the surface. And it doesn't matter whether you're on TV or you're working for the weather service. We're all in the same boat because we're all looking at the same computer models. We're all using our knowledge as a meteorologist tr to try to hone in on that perfect forecast. But I always like to use the golfing analogy. We just like to get it close. <laughs> <laughs> what kinds of resources do you use to prepare your forecast? I mean, do you do you depend on the National Weather Service, uh, for example? And do you ever deviate from? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, all the time. Absolutely. And again, that, a lot of that goes to the history of being here because, uh, you know, you have a, a, a group of, no, of new people that are working at the Weather Service, so they haven't gone through years of experience. And so they are truly using their knowledge from just the computer models, they're using their knowledge from what people have told them that have lived here. But until you actually experience it, uh, it goes a long ways toward uh, helping you out with your forecast. And so history, again, is our, is our best friend. But uh, yes, I deviate from the weather service all the time. Um, the models that we use are government models. And so in that regard, we're using NOAA models. Um, uh, we also have some university models, University of Oklahoma, Texas Tech University, Kansas State. Uh, University of Chicago, um, College of DuPage, uh, um, yeah, College of DuPage, uh, model run, Florida State. I use a lot of model runs that I look at, and then I kind of come up with the average from all those models that I have seen over the years that really do a good job for us out in the panhandle to come up with my daily forecast. It takes a long time for me to get through it, 
but I've, I feel very confident when I go on air with what I'm about to say. And that does help out. Um, when you don't have to track hurricanes up here, fortunately, mm-hmm. but when I'm watching them do this on national television, they're, they're often talking about an American model, a European model, and then they show the spaghetti bowl with all the different <laughs> forecast tracks. And it looks like it's just a, you know, a drunkard's walk. <laughs> it does. It does. Absolutely. But that all comes into play. And when we're forecasting weather, uh, we use what are known as deterministic models. So we use what's, what's known right now as the NAM, which is the North American model run. Uh, the, the grid is in kilometers. Uh, once you get off the surface of the earth, everything goes to the metric system and weather. So we're always converting from whatever over to inches to miles per hour from, from knots and Celsius and whatnot. And uh, so when we're talking about uh, the models, uh, we take all that information and then we kind of boil it down to what we have seen again in the past with what happens in Amarillo, what I've seen happen before. And that gives me a good idea of how I'm going to forecast. But uh, in the short range, we use what are known as the uh, deterministic models. So the North American model run has a 40 kilometer grid. There's another one called the North American model run, which is, uh, and they call it the nest, which is a three kilometer grid. So that helps out in micrometeorology when you're forecasting thunderstorms and in straight line wind events and, and blizzards. Uh, but you also have the medium range models and that's the American model and the European model and the Canadian model. So those are the three models we look at after we get past uh, basically 72 hours, you start looking at the medium range models. And when we look at a forecast, because we are looking at basically uh, a, a product that at the point that it was coming together as a model run has already changed. The weather has already changed. So uh, again, you're looking at what has occurred and you're trying to adjust it to what you think will occur. And then again, using that same model, you're trying to figure out how does that actually affect Amarillo, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. A lot of things go into yeah. a lot of variables. How has technology changed the job of the meteorologist in the time that you have been a professional? I mean, des- describe what you had at your disposal when you began back okay. in the early 90s compared to all the, the cool gadgets and stuff you oh, have today. Absolutely. In 1992, uh, when I would uh, in 1992, first of all, we didn't have all of the universities that had their computer model runs on the internet. We hardly even had the internet. Uh, it was just being used for really uh, things that were not available to the normal person. So the way we would get our models were through what's known as a DIFAX, and they're all on paper. And back then, the North American model run was called the ADA model. And before that was called the NGM model. And so when I went to school at Metropolitan State, I learned off the NGM model. And it was an 80-kilometer grid. And at that time, when you were forecasting, for example, the model thought the Rocky Mountains went all the way out to the Kansas state line. And so we had to adjust for that when we were forecasting the weather because there are all types of little biases built into that model run. And so uh, that helps you learn it. But everything I did at that time was hand analysis. So we would get the model runs in. We'd cut them off the diefacts. We'd get the upper-level charts in. Uh, a little bit on, about meteorology, not to get into a long tangent here, but uh, each day, weather balloons go up uh, 12 hours apart, 7 a.m., 7 p.m. Now that we're in uh, standard time, 6 a.m., 6 p.m. This happens around the world at the same time, uh, and that's how we get what we refer to as a basically a, a 
complete idea of what the weather's doing because, again, you're looking at different levels of the atmosphere. And so I start up at 300 millibars, which is about 35,000 feet. From then from there, I forecast the weather at 500 millibars, which is about 20,000 feet. Then I go down to 700 millibars, which is about 10,000 feet. Then I go down to 850 millibars, which is about uh, 1,500 feet. Then I get to the surface. So we get these charts in, and that's the way it used to be. They came in on paper. They, they were paper charts. So we'd have them hung up on the wall, and you look at the 300 millibar. 500, the 700, the 850, and then the surface. And then we'd actually have the forecast model run. And it would look at uh, the vertical velocities. It'd look at the temperatures at 10,000 feet. It'd look at the temperatures at the surface. We'd see what are known as vorticity maxima coming in that lifts the atmosphere. The simplest way to define how weather occurs is by the fact that air rises. And when air rises, we get weather. If there's any moisture in the atmosphere, it will naturally cool and condensate and we get the rain in the summer or we get the snow in the winter. So when air rises, that's how we get winter. So all those model runs are pointing to where is the air going, where is the air going to be ascending so that we actually have weather. And so we'd use hand and we'd use, I had matte pencils and I would use different colors for different air masses. And then I'd do all that, to, you know, I put all that together and come out with my forecast. So I always tell my new guys, we had it, it was difficult back then because we're actually doing hand analysis on the model run Whereas now the computers do all that for you, just looking at all the information available to you on the screen. I remember watching the weather as a kid back in Chicago, and it, it looked like the weathermen were standing in front of a big flannel graph where they had put yeah. L's and H's and cold fronts and warm fronts. Tom Skilling? Yeah, yeah, clouds and things <laughs> like that. And But now you've got green screens and you've got we all do. kinds of animated maps and so oh, forth do. and future casts. And you, you can just snap your finger or point your clicker and... It's, you know, the show begins and you're just standing there, right? <laughs> oh, the technology is completely different from the way it was when I first went on TV. In fact, uh, Dr. Gerlich, when I first was on TV at KFDA out on the north side of town, we actually had to write in lines of code. Not very, it was very elementary, but we had to write in lines of code just to get a satellite. And you could either have a satellite, which was infrared, uh, visibles were not really available to us back then, but infrared satellite, or you could have a national radar, and that was it. And mm -hmm. so when I went on the air, I'd have either a satellite or a radar, depending on what was going on. And then the graphics we would build, we actually had a stylus where we had to draw a circle for the clouds, and then you'd touch the center of that circle and fill in the cloud. And if that circle weren't completely filled in, you'd completely flood the entire graphic and you'd have to start over. <laughs> so the times have changed and it was so frustrating back then. But now, like you say, it's it's just like your own home computer. It, it, it happens so quickly and the graphics are are so intelligent. They're, they are 3D. They're, they're, you know, the thing is we're having to compete with all the gamers out there now because you don't want to put something cheesy on TV when they've got a three-dimensional figure that's running through a jungle doing whatever that's doing, and the graphics are so realistic. So fortunately, our vendors are coming out with those really uh, realistic graphics, 3D, 4D, and that helps us out when we're telling the weather at the wall. Green wall behind us, uh, that, uh, that's the choice of the station. Uh, it came our local four. We like the green wall because sometimes we'll put a reporter in front of that green wall, and you have more options for your suits and your clothing to wear. Blue wall at the other place. I could never wear anything blue. I had a lot of charcoal grays and red that I wore at the other place. Otherwise, you become a ghost, right? <laughs> you become a ghost, yeah. You have whatever's on the board behind you start just, for me, it'd be uh, clouds and rain and whatnot, which is kind of cool in its own sense. But uh, what, about, what about all the consumer tools? I mean, I remember when 
here in Amarillo, I had to call a local telephone number to get the forecast and the yeah. current temperature or yeah. or had to have a special weather radio to yes. dial in the National Weather Service. And, and we've come a long way now with apps and websites. I mean, I can sit and look at an app and see if I'm mm-hmm. about to run into a squall line or something and I can mm-hmm. just turn away from it and save myself without having to find a television or a weather radio. Oh, without a doubt. And I mean, that, uh, believe it or not, that is actually competition to your local TV station because the younger generation, whenever they want to look at something, everything is now, now, now. They just look at the app on their phone. And so we are competing now with people looking at their computer screen, their app, their Android device. When they're doing the, you know, when I'm doing the weather, they're looking at the same thing. They're saying, well, that's not what this says. And so we like to, we, we like to call those apps Crap apps. I'm sorry. That's it's what okay. we call them. Uh, but uh, no, they do come in handy. And uh, we we still suggest a NOAA weather radio because in the end, the meteorologists that are on TV are not giving the warnings. We convey the warnings to you. The warnings can only be produced by the National Weather Service. I've, if I were to go on TV, for example, and say, we now have a tornado warning out for Randall County. If you live in Canyon, you need to go in your place of safety at this time because I see a tornado. If a person goes down into their basement and they were to fall going down the stairways and break their leg, we could be held liable. So what my job is, is to convey to you what the Weather Service is telling us. And that's why when you see those maps up on the TV, the graphics, those are all being generated by the products through the Weather Service. Uh, Whether it's a winter storm warning, whether it's a tornado warning, whether it's a thunderstorm warning, a heat advisory, we have the technology to put those graphics up on TV. But then our job as being on-air TV meteorologist is to convey that message to you because we still are the best way to get that message out to people that need to know. But it's good to have the NOAA Weather Radio. It's also good to have the uh, the apps. Little commercial here. For example, KMR Local 4, we actually have free apps for news and for weather. And so this is what I tell my viewing audience. You know, if a thunderstorm is over your house or, God forbid, a tornado is coming through town, nine times out of ten, electricity goes off because the power grid's being affected by either a straight-line wind or by a tornado. So in your place of safety, you no longer have light. And your place of safety more than likely is going to be in a basement, a cellar, or in the center of your house where there's no windows. And so it's going to be pitch black. And so that TV set goes off, the radio goes off. So what you want to do is have an app on your phone so that you can continue to watch the weather. At KMR, we stream our severe weather updates on the app. And so if the electricity goes off at your house, you can pull up the KMR Local 4 Weather app and you can see me streaming live that severe weather update for you or for whomever we're talking about at that time. So it's a safety tool. But again, it's a lot of convenience. Mm. Now, re- returning to Amarillo, there, there are certain aspects of your forecasting job that are nearly always the same day in and day out. Yes. Wind and sunshine. Now, <laughs> I have to confess, a few years ago, um, I was getting frustrated as a photographer. I like to travel and shoot all over the country. But I noticed that um, a lot of the time of the uh, every year, I'd be heading down into the southeast in at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, it's always cloudy here. What's going on? Uh-huh. And so I started digging into the weather patterns and found out well, winter is their rainy season, like from Mississippi across uh, Georgia, basically the Gulf states, right, right. the Gulf Coast states. And yes. and so with rain comes clouds and stuff. And then I started studying uh, avail- sunshine availability. How much do you get in, in all these different places? That's when I stumbled into a really cool fact that Amarillo gets 73% of its available sunshine. Mm-hmm. 
tied with Ely, Nevada for 16th sunniest in that? the U.S. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And, and I guess second in wind, right? <laughs> yes. And, and, and of course, if you don't have the sunshine, you're probably not going to have the wind because the right. sun causes pressure gradients, pressure gradients cause wind. So, but other than the, wind, the sun and the wind, which are the two constants out here, mm-hmm. what are your biggest challenge in, challenges in nailing a forecast? Well, it's always tough when we're talking about an Arctic air mass moving through because typically the Arctic air masses are hours ahead of what the computer model suggests. So you have to, when you're forecasting, you have to allow for that. And so all of our products are, are, are time-driven that we show on TV and so you may have a product that automatically updates when the model says that front comes through. But if I'm on air and I know it's coming through, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe two hours earlier, then I need to, of course, make that correction on TV very quickly. One thing I like to do, I'm not a pilot per se, but I love to look at aviation apps because those are the people, those are the guys, the girls that deal with weather off the surface. And so those products that I see coming in on aviation uh, computers, they really help me with my forecast because it gives me a, a, a very good idea of what's actually going to occur by what's happening upstream. Again, not only at the surface, but aloft. And so I use a lot of those products when I'm putting my forecast together. The biggest topic in weather news these days can be summed up in two Spanish words, El Nino. The, <laughs> or like, uh, or like uh, Saturday night, I've said, the Nino. The Nino, yeah. <laughs> well, the weather phenomenon is back and forecasters yes. are all over the map. Uh, yeah. Bad pun, I know, but trying to predict how it's going to play out this time. After the break, we'll take a long look at the long-range forecast. Life sometimes has a way of interfering with our university education. Marriage, family, work... Any or all of these can cause us to hit the pause button on our degree, with hopes of one day finishing it. The only problem is that returning to campus can get a lot harder when you're no longer 20 years old. And that's precisely why we launched our online BBA, with majors in accounting, finance, general business, marketing, management, human resource management, and computer information systems. Available completely online. You can return to school without having to step foot on campus, or maybe you want to transfer in from a two-year program elsewhere, but once again, are not able to attend face-to-face. Our online offerings are for you as well. We can help you finish your degree and climb higher on your career ladder at your pace and in your time. We're double A CSV accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with the WTBBA in hand. For more info, find us at wtnu.edu slash cov or call 806 651-2525. John, in a nutshell, what is El Nino or the Nino and how does it <laughs> differ from La Nina? Okay, they, you know, okay, that, that really just depends on what part of the country you live in. Uh, for other parts of the country, uh, La Nina gives them a lot of rain. For our part of the country, it's not that way. La Nina gives us a rich high pressure over us. And that basically spells dry weather in the winter. And of course, uh, if you've had a rainy summer and you've had a lot of uh, grasses that have grown, you've had a lot of vegetation that's grown because of the high humidity and the rain, and then all of a sudden you get into our fall and winter, which is typically dry by climate, uh, those grasses then once we get our freezes, they go into dormancy. They now become the tender for a wildfire. And so during an uh, La Nina, wildfires are a huge concern during the winter months. During an El Nino, it's the opposite. So what causes this? Well, El Nino, you have to think about the world climate. 
the way these, these temporary climate changes affect our weather is by what is going on in the equatorial Pacific Ocean. That's the main place where we get either El, El Ninos or La Ninas. Okay, the Earth is covered by three-quarters water. We would not have weather if we didn't have the oceans. The oceans and the atmosphere are tied together. And the humidity and heat that is moving across an ocean in the equatorial regions will be transferred or transported north and south because of high pressure and low pressure grains, clockwise, counterclockwise flow around those entities. And that warm water then interacts with the atmosphere farther north of the equator, maybe out around Hawaii or to the west of the Baja of California. Warm water energizes the atmosphere. And the reason it does, anything warm is light, it rises into the cooler air. And that energizes the jet stream. So to, to not get into a lot of meteorology, the jet stream then governs our weather during an El Nino and can give us rain or snow. What goes on? The jet stream is a fast-moving current of air aloft at about, say, twenty to 30,000 feet. It moves so fast, the air is evacuated. Mother Nature wants to fill that evacuation, so she takes air from the surface. It rises up to the jet stream and when air rises, cools, and condenses, we get rain or we get snow. And so that's why El Ninos are important to us because the jet stream is typically right over the top of us. Now, the big question comes down to are the players involved? We have what are known as mid-latitude cyclones. We call them storm systems. Basically, they're areas of low pressure that rotate counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere. And the colder the air is that is feeding the low pressure center, the faster it rotates. The faster it rotates, the more lift we get, the more bad weather we get. Uh, if the low goes too far south, our friends around Lubbock and the Permian Basin get the precipitation. If the low pressure center goes about 75 nautical miles south of Amarillo, the statute miles 5280 and nautical miles 6,000 feet. If that, if that low goes basically down to Plainview and across, we are in the sweet spot to get heavy snow or rain, depending on the temperature profile that day. So El Ninos give us a lot of precipitation during the months during the uh basically during the the late fall into the winter months our average snowfall in amarillo is 17.8 inches typically during an el nino year we can double that amount or even almost triple that amount depending on where you live and how much wind you have with the snow drifts and whatnot but uh anyway el ninos are friends sometimes you get too much of a good thing and uh also okay let's take this year we're in an el nino we haven't seen much moisture yet but the computer models are suggesting, and we can only look at what they say because they have all of the parameters, and and the models are suggesting that we will be coming into more of a, uh, uh, a climate that will give us better chances for precipitation late winter and or late fall into the winter months. What's your prediction for this El Nino? Is it going to be like just like a, a, another pa a page out of the playbook from all Ninos past, or uh, is it going to be different? I think it's going to be right now when we look at the uh, the indices that are associated with this current El Nino, it's a strong one. We call it 3.4, and 3.4 typically will give the panhandles uh, some really good precipitation. Uh, you compare it to uh, lower values, which means there's not as warm, the air is not as warm, it's not as conducive toward lifting the atmosphere. Uh, so a weak El Nino probably means not much, but a strong El Nino gives us at least a chance a higher percentage of seeing more inclement weather, which leads to rain and snow. And one thing that we are concerned about is that this El Nino is going to last up through about March or April. And then we're going to go into neutral. And typically, 
when we use history as a guide, we can look at 1995. We can look at 2007. We can look at 2009. We can look at 2013. We can look at 2015. Those were all years where we were coming out of an El Nino going into a neutral, and typically that marries up with a very severe weather season for us. And so one of our concerns now is that this El Nino may provide for a rough, severe weather season for us. On average, we see 21 tornadoes in the panhandle during an average spring season. Of course, it hails all the time. Our elevation has a lot to do with that. But uh, we may see an above-average severe weather season with all players, uh, severe weather-wise, for the spring of 2024. Now, I remember one El Nino winter out here. It was either late 90s or early 2000s. It's been a long time now, but Mm -hmm. I remember there being almost four feet of snow. I mean, that's a lot of snow for a place that doesn't even get 20 inches on average. I mean, Mm -hmm. even Chicago, where I came from, gets less than 40 inches on average. Mm -hmm. How exactly did Amarillo wind up in the crosshairs for so many (laughs) snow events that year? (laughs) Well, it's called... uh... It's, well, first of all, it's called uh, uh, longitude versus latitude. We're at 34 degrees, 30 to 34 degrees up here in the panhandle. We're far enough north where we actually get all four seasons. Again, we're close to the Rocky Mountains. And so we get the, uh, the weather patterns coming in from the Rockies. We get the cold air from Canada. We have the humidity coming in from the Gulf. And so all of that comes together to maybe give us a blizzard or give us a heavy snow event. And so, uh, again, uh, if you're in an El Nino year and you have one pattern after another coming over us that's dumping the snow over you uh, or, or giving you the, the possibility for seeing more precipitation, you can really see your, your mounts add up, whether it's rain or snow. 2015, we had a lot of rain during the summer months. I remember flying in from Alaska with my wife and seeing all of the Playa Lakes full of water in 2015. That was such a nice thing to see. And believe it or not, in 2015, an El Nino year, our worst day for severe weather actually occurred in November that year on Monday the 16th. We had 19 tornadoes come down. We had two EF3s that came down around the Pampa area, went through the Halliburton plant, uh, did some damage. But that was in November. That was when temperatures were in the 50s and 60s, not when temperatures are in the 70s and 80s. And people associate the warmer temperatures with tornado season. That's not necessarily the way it works. Now, uh, with El Nino and La Nina being a result of uh, water temps out in the Pacific, mm-hmm. what causes the the water temperatures to vary from one year to the next? I mean, is it Mother Nature just saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna send some warm weather north," or what's going on here? Well, again, when you're talking about the uh, the movement or the advection of warm water from, say, Australia east towards, uh, say, South America. And that's where the El Nino start. Uh, a lot of that has to do with, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, it, could do, it, it could be the tilt of the earth. It could be the time of the year. It could be the, uh, the pressure gradients that are involved, how strong or how weak they are. Uh, it could be with it could be involved with the salinity of the water. It could be involved with if we had a volcano that exploded or erupted somewhere around like Mount Pinatubo did in in the Philippines years ago. It actually cooled the atmosphere around the Earth because of the rotation of the Earth. The ash spread from the equator all the way to the poles, and if you have a cooler atmosphere, you have less heat energy that becomes that you know goes vertical, and so you have more of a stable climate. So all of those players come into 
an El Nino versus a La Nina. But I will tell you this, when you look at history as a guide, it's about every five to seven years we'll have an El Nino come through. Some right. will be strong, some will be weak. And what are the effects of El Nino elsewhere in the U.S. and around the world for that matter? Well, it just depends on, uh, and there's other oscillations in the oceans that go on at the same time. We have the decadal oscillation that occurs up in Alaska that actually will affect our weather because it may take an El Nino that is perfectly set up to give us a wet season in the Texas Panhandle, but because of cool, dry air coming in with this oscillation further north across the ocean, it transports all the energy and all the moisture to Oklahoma and Mississippi and Arkansas, and we are left high and dry. Uh, those oscillations, we have an Atlantic oscillation. So you have a lot of these undulations that are occurring in the atmosphere. And then you also have El Nino. And so sometimes they marry up and they really hammer us with lots of precipitation. And then there's other times they don't. So for what, what does an El Nino mean for the northern part of the country? It means dry weather, uh, above average temperatures, uh, because they're basically getting the ridge over them up there. Down here means uh, more cloud cover. Uh, less variation in temperatures because of cloud cover, higher humidity, better chances for rain and snow. Uh, a La Nina for different parts of the world means different things. Um, also, when you look at the Earth's, when you look at the Earth's geography, the majority of the continents are north of the equator. Uh, most of the land mass is north of the equator. You go south of the equator, you have South America, you have Australia, you have parts of Africa, and then you have um, uh, the southern, or, or you have uh, the, the South Pole. Antarctica. And so there's more water and there's less land masses. And so the atmosphere is more stable, believe it or not, across the Southern Hemisphere where there's just more water. Whereas when you get into the Northern Hemisphere and you have all these heating differences because of the land masses versus the oceans, and remember that warm air wants to rise, cool, and condense, we get a lot more adverse weather across the Northern Hemisphere because of that. That adverse weather drives the jet stream. The jet stream governs the weather that we're going to have over the Panhandle and elsewhere. And it's a circulation around the, around the globe. It's just not from the West Coast to the East Coast. That jet stream started over in Asia and made its way all the way around the globe and came across. Uh, the airliners use the jet stream as their friend going from West to East because they save money on their fuel. Uh, back in World War II, uh, Japan launched uh, bombs and put them into the jet stream on balloons, hoping they'd land somewhere or, or float somewhere over the United States. And, you know, that was part of their war effort. So, well. I'm ready for you, John. I got my snow shovel out. Just, <laughs> I just keep it out during the winter months, you know, keep it handy. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to be looking for it when I need it. So right. if it starts happening, I'm, I'm ready good. to start digging out. Good, good. Now, I, I've looked at the three-month forecast models that the National Weather Service But you uses. see today's model. No. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you said that, uh, you know, maybe ending March or April or so. Right. So I looked at the... The, the three month models, and these are put out like uh, December, January, February, right. you know what I'm talking about, yes. January, February, March, and then on down the road. Mm -hmm. And because I, I was just curious to see what they're, what they're thinking. And, and it shows our area having near normal temperatures as we move far into the winter season and staying that way until late in the winter. Mm -hmm. Then February, March, April, that's when we go into the blue, into the below normal high temps right. as we move into spring, basically. Right. And But precipitation is predicted to be above normal the whole time. Mm -hmm. Now, is this typical of El Nino winters to have the temperatures lagging and not really getting cooler than normal until late when, when you want it to be getting warm, you know? <laughs> 
I've seen a lot of vari- uh, variability with that. I've okay. seen some El Ninos in the winter where we've had a lot of ice and just rain, cold rain, and not so much snow. Um, I think of 1998 maybe, and we had a lot of trees that were uh, Thompson Park. Trees were down all over the place. And uh, it, that's because we had a lot of freezing rain. We had a lot of sleet. We had a lot of cold rain, but not so much snow. And so, again, that goes to the day in and day out. Uh, what's going on in the atmosphere as to how the atmosphere is divided up by how warm or how cold it is aloft, and that governs the precipitation types we get at the surface. But uh, typically with an El Nino in the winter, one thing you see less of are Arctic outbreaks. The reason for that, the winds aloft are generally from west to east, which again, govern our weather at the surface. And so what will happen is the winds aloft will mix out that really cold air and push it to the east of us. So we may have a day where it's really cold, but then we start to moderate those temperatures quickly after that. And so when you look at the average, you're saying it wasn't that cold uh, during the month of January, February, because of that going on. A lot of averaging goes on in weather. Uh, So the Arctic air masses are less during a El Nino. Uh, Also, the variability or or the variation in temperature as far as heat versus cold is not as great because of higher humidity and more cloud cover, like you were seeing in the southeast part of the United States. Whereas if you don't have the humidity and you have more sunshine, again, you get that diurnal range in temperatures. So El Nino gives us a more constant temperature throughout the winter months. But again, it is still winter in the northern hemisphere. We are still tilted away from the sun. It's still going to be winter. So the odds are better that you'll see more snowfall. And then also, because as we get into March, uh, late February into March, And because of the tilt of the earth, and we're starting to make that tilt back toward the summer, we're getting more humidity into our part of the world, which helps to give us higher amounts of snow in March and maybe higher amounts of rain in March during an El Nino year. Maybe not so much severe weather just yet because the atmosphere is still too stable and too cold. So the first El Nino I remember as an adult was in the winter of 82, 83. I was Mm -hmm. back home in Chicago between... Uh, graduate degrees. And uh, mm-hmm. boy, it was a winter to remember. Sunny, mild days on mm-hmm. end, totally opposite the winters I experienced there in the late 70s. Is is it safe to say the northern tier will have pretty balmy conditions again this winter? And for that matter, should we just all plan on vacationing up north this, this year? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All the snowbirds <laughs> just hang out in Minnesota this year. Uh, well, when you look at it, when you, again, Using history as a guide and climate as a guide, yes, that's the way it works. Uh, El Nino means rainy, cool, wintry here and balmy conditions farther to the north. But uh, I always use uh, the phrase I like to say in all of my weathercast, only time will tell. Yeah. Well, balmy, <laughs> balmy is relative because I remember uh-huh. those days being like in the 50s. Well, that's normal. That's statistical right. normal here in winter. but. Right. 55 in January in Chicago is it's a heat be- wave. It's beach weather. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Literally, yeah. And and I've been up into Canada. Uh, it's usually in the summer months, but it can be pretty cool up there in some of the places. And you'll see the the, the local people dressed in shorts, uh, T-shirts, enjoying that nice 50, 55 degree warmth and a little bit of a breeze coming off of the uh, the Pacific Ocean. In this case, we're on Victoria in Victoria. And I'm thinking I'm freezing to death up here right now. <laughs> you sound like you sound like a native Floridian. They make fun of the snowbirds <laughs> that come down here and go to the beach on those rare days when it's actually cold in mm-hmm. Tampa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the Floridians are all staying home. And if they do go out there in parkas and all the Yankees oh, yeah. down there in t-shirts and flip flops. <laughs> yeah, and and I hate to say this, Nick, because I get older and I'm I'm 60 years old, about to be 61. 
I'm preferring the warmer weather. So, uh, you know, you. <laughs> and, and I actually have a son that lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. My wife and I have talked about, well, after we're finished with our careers, do we want to live down around where he lives in, in the Metroplex? And, you know, I like that idea, but I don't like that idea because I do love the sunny days, the beautiful sunsets, so the variety of weather. Even if I'm not involved with forecasting it, that passion is still there. And I think that will be there till the day I die. Is the frequency of El Nino winters increasing, decreasing, or is it staying the same? And for that matter, I mean, since the you know, the first time that I remember ever hearing about it was back in 82, have meteorologists ever known about, how long have they known about it in the first place? Well, El Nino's, and uh, as, as far as we know, they've always been around. Now, when we started actually calling them El Nino's versus uh, La Nina's, uh, you go, you know, one thing we learned in meteorology, the reason why it's known as El Nino is that uh, the warm water would migrate eastward toward South America. And because a lot of the people that live along the coastline in South America, I guess uh, it would be in Peru in that area, their livelihood are, is fishing. And so the warm waters would upwell the, uh, the, 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 the colder water from the from the lower depths and it would cause problems with their fishing, but they, it, this would all happen around Christmas. And because of it being historically a very Catholic part of the, the world, uh, we think about Christ and uh, the, the, the Christ child. And so they refer to it as El Nino. Hmm. And so that was, it's a Christmas phenomena. And then it lingers for six months, six months after that. So that's kind of how you get those names. But, El Ninos and La Ninos have been around as long as we have been keeping data, uh, the climate of the of the world. And so uh, we just didn't have a name for that until later on. But uh, those climate variations do occur. We don't know exactly why they occur every four to five to six, seven years. We have our ideas. Um, everything affects everything else uh, as to uh, how weather changes. But uh, there's some things that's like it's still a guess. After the break, we'll touch base with another frequently discussed topic, and that is the change that is all around us. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States, and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for a promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. It's virtually impossible to be alive today and not hear someone mention climate change in What's the last that? 24 hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it's talked about everywhere from the news to the weather, social media, in print. Mm -hmm. And and while it 
can certainly be a politically charged topic. There, there is no denying the climate is changing. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been here long enough now, 34, 34 and a half years, to have seen sufficiently many data points to have noticed that change around us. Uh, John, how is climate changing here in Amarillo and the Texas Panhandle? Well, I can I can tell you this. Uh, up until last year, our average rainfall for Amarillo was 20.23 inches of rain. We're now down to 19.66 inches of rain. And we feel like that is due to climate change. Uh, you know, it is occurring. Uh, there's really no way to get around it. Uh, we are seeing it happen not only in the United States, but around the world. Um, a lot of it may be due to just the way it's meant to be with our Earth, the age of the Earth, rotation of the Earth. But of course, mankind, people on this Earth, have added to that because of the pollutants we put up into the atmosphere. Um, I mean, we have the science data to support that. So this isn't just somebody that's half-cocked thinking about, well, if something else is going on, we have the data to prove that this is occurring and what happens up there affects us down here or what happens down there affects us up here because we live on a globe, we live on a sphere that's rotating. And because of the rotation of the earth and because of the physics that govern our weather, whatever's happening over there will eventually affect us up here. Uh, It's a cause and effect relationship in the world of weather. So what happens upstream is going to affect us here eventually. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember back in grad school, I took a, an elective course um, in, in from the sociology department in uh, longitudinal data analysis. And mm-hmm. uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it wasn't just measuring data at a, at a point in time, right. but but looking at it across time. And and when you look at data like that, you, you begin to see seasonality. You, do. you see cyclicality. You see random events. But then you also... Uh, once you start massaging the data, you begin to see trend lines, whether, you know, is this, are all these things trending upward? Yeah, you've got winter, summer, you know, the the highs and the lows and all that. And then mm-hmm. cycle, sunspots, and then random freaky years. But overall, the data tend to be going this direction or that direction. Right. But, okay, not everybody can take a course in time series analysis, right? I mean, right. How, what are the risks for the average person in trying to interpret all these things? Well, I think it depends on what you do for a living. Um, if you're in a city, for example, you may not notice it. Uh, if you are a rancher or a farmer in this part of the world, you probably are noticing it. I, I can give you a good case in point. Uh, the Harrises, my family is from the Childress, Kwana, Kirkland area, which is 287 southeast of us, uh, even though I grew up in Oklahoma. And we have quite a bit of dryland farming down there. And we have gone at least 10 years without really turning a crop. Um, and we've had to have help from, you know, the government that helps out the farmers uh, because of the lack of rainfall or too much wind or maybe a hard freeze. I mean, more than what you normally would see. And so that has wiped out numerous years of crops. Uh, and that is something that when you talk to the older farmers and ranchers, not only in that part of the country, but also up here, things have changed. We have, we have less water in the aquifer, in the Ogallala, to help feed the crops. All of that is driven because of rain or lack of rain. And all of that is driven because of climate changes or, or deviations in the climate. 
Um, you know, we just came out of a triple dip La Nina. First time we've seen that happen, as far as I know it, forever. And so we've gone through three years of drought. And so we are seeing our reservoirs drop. We are seeing just everything around us is changing. Some of that will be replenished, but some of that will not. Okay, here's the unknowns. Volcanoes. Volcano spews, puts a lot of ash in the air. We don't get as much solar radiation. All of a sudden, our average temperature around the world drops. That then will cause a difference in the climate uh, over a period of time. Earthquakes, all of the unknown disasters can cause, uh, you know, a, a climate to change. Uh, the decay of, of, uh, of trees and the amount of carbon monoxide and the amount of carbon dioxide that's put into the air, carbon monoxide with cars and whatnot, dioxide with, with, with uh, organic life and whatnot. So uh, everything affects our climate. And when you look at our atmosphere, our atmosphere is very thin. It goes from zero feet up to about maybe 300,000 feet above us, and then it blends into space, basically. It, it's a little higher than that. But uh, it's a very thin atmosphere we live in. Every evening uh, when you're doing your forecast, you show uh, what the average highs and lows are for each day in right. NRL. It's always fun to compare because, you know, you you point out, you know, uh, how much above or below normal we right. are and all that. And, mm-hmm. and But what's seldom, if ever, discussed is how those averages are calculated. It, and, and it's really, it's a rolling average of the most recent observations. Uh, I, I dug into this as well. Uniform 30-year grouping. I'm not telling you anything new, but basically when you report the average high for today, it is based on the 30 years, the most recent 30-year block with the last year ending in zero. Right. In other words, they only do it during the census years. So right now we're looking at 91 through 2020. Exactly. Um, But so I've lived here enough to have seen data points that included numbers from oh easily the the 1960s uh um the next the next set will be what 2001 through 2030 but we right. won't see those for another 8 years mm-hmm. um why do they only look at 30 year blocks as opposed to all of the recorded history of weather in Amarillo well you know that is a good question i think that uh probably it it, it also goes down to you know, it comes down to how much data do you actually have available to look at. And if you're looking at 30-year 30 block, uh, blocks, you're looking at something that is manageable for us as humans to understand and compare that to what we see on a daily basis for, for our average versus not what is average. Um, uh, it, it's, there's probably other variables involved, but I would say that probably the way the human mind thinks, uh, the way we look at things in totality – 30 years is a good number to go with. Well, statistically, it's perfect because <laughs> you you need an N of 30 to be able to perform statistical right. analysis. Absolutely, so, you so do. Yeah. It's like these guys were reading their textbooks. They were. <laughs> well, I will tell you this, Nick. The only class that really transferred from my marketing degree to my meteorology degrees was probability and stat. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the class students all love to hate, but it's actually good stuff. It is very good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So what about precipitation, wind, and the overall severity of the weather? Mm-hmm. It seems like we're having a lot more significant weather events, both here and across the nation, and for that matter, around the world. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that uh, just depends on the year. I think it also depends on, uh, uh, you know, if we're in an El Nino versus a La Nina as to who will see what. Uh, 
With some of the localized events, you have to be careful with saying, oh, that's because of global warming or that's because of climate change, because it's whatever is governing that local event at the time that's going to cause that wind to really blow or that tornado to form. A supercell thunderstorm, we know the probability is there we're going to have large hail. That, that supercell thunderstorm is going to give us the probability of 60, or mile, 60 mile per hour winds or higher, which are severe winds. Rotating thunderstorm means it's easier for a tornado to form. So you have to look at the micrometeorology and say, this is normal. We see this happening. Where it becomes unnormal is if you're seeing more of those supercells forming in a time of the year when they typically don't form. And then that's when you wonder, well, is there something else going on? A good, a good case in point, Hurricane Harvey that hit the Gulf Coast back in 2017. It was a tropical storm as it came up through the care, or excuse me, up through, it came into uh, basically the Yucatan as a tropical storm, weakened as it came up through Guatemala, up through Panama. And then once it entered into the Gulf waters, which had not been tapped by any previous storm uh, that year, it exploded into a Category 5 uh, hurricane. Came ashore, I believe it was a Cat 4, Port Aransas, went into the San Antonio area, then made its way down to Houston as a tropical storm. I think it came back as maybe a cat one briefly, but it dumped so much rain around Houston that the National Weather Service offices actually had to revamp their scale for how much rain they would be seeing in Southeast Texas, the coastal bend. Because of that, that was blamed on global warming because the Gulf waters were extremely warm. And that extremely warm water energized the atmosphere and caused that hurricane to explode. When the current data set was released in May of 21, I noticed that our daily average highs took a huge jump upward um, and, and pretty much year-round, but very profoundly in January. For example, uh, I study these things way too much because I, I do, I'm an outdoor athlete, so I, I want to know what I'm getting into, sure, sure. what kind of gear to buy and all that. Uh -huh. It used to be that in January, the average high bottomed out around maybe 48, 49, and right. then started trending back up mm -hmm. for, a, for a monthly average of about 50. But now yeah. the monthly average for January is 52. Now, you know, the average person might say, oh, it's just one or two degrees, no big deal. But mm -hmm. that's a huge, difference a huge difference when you consider that it's only a, over a marginal 10-year period. Right. We dropped off the 80s and added the 20-teens and all of a sudden added two degrees to the average January day. Exactly. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, my goodness, that's a, that's a tough one to answer. Uh, again, you're looking at what the climate was versus what the climate is now. You're looking at uh, whatever's going on uh, within that 10-year period. Did we have, uh, you know, was there an asteroid that hit the earth? Was there a country that really expanded with their economic power, with the, the amount of pollutants they were putting up into the atmosphere because all of a sudden they are no longer a third world country? They have really come forward with uh, their modern technology. Uh, you, there are so many variables that are involved that, again, circulate around the world because we're on a sphere and because of the physics that govern our atmosphere that will govern the change of the average low versus what it was 10 years ago versus what it is now by how much more sun we're getting, how much ver more variability there is day in and day out in that area of the country because of lack of rain, lack of snow, lack of clouds, driving that temperature up, 
um, a lot of those things come into play. I, I remember when I moved here, typical summer had 60 days of 90 or higher. Right. And six days, only mm-hmm. six of 100 plus. And as you well know, we've gone flying <laughs> past those old norms many times right. just in the last 10 to 15 years. Right. And and while nothing may hold a candle to the summer of 2011, oh my God, was mm. that hot. <laughs> this summer was still pretty hot and, and it, it, it didn't get going until well into July. If you look right. back at June, June was cool. Exactly. Well, the reason for that, it was raining in June. Yeah. You know, we came through the floods uh, late May into June. If you think about Hereford, Hereford was hit by a deluge of rain. It had all of the flooding there. Of course, we had the lakes in downtown Amarillo, the Lawrence Lake and the Playa Lakes around the city that flooded. And so May into June, we were covered up with rain and clouds. And so they kept our temperature cooler. Typically, during an El Nino summer, which we are in, the monsoon gets started in uh, the month of July. And then you have more rain, you have more clouds. And so you're keeping that daily temperature down below 100. It takes more calories from the sun to heat a humid atmosphere as compared to a dry atmosphere. And that's one reason why when you're talking about uh, different parts of the country where it's typically hot and humid, you know, some places don't see 100 that often. Now, Dallas-Fort Worth does. But some places don't, but they make up for it with the uncomfortableness of the amount of humidity in the air. And so up here in the panhandle, if we have a lot of cloud cover, if we have high humidity, uh, even if we're not seeing the rain, that humidity will help keep that temperature below 100. Plus, if we have green grass, green grass will help keep the temperature below 100 versus the browns and the, and, and, and the dark, which will absorb the heat, reflect the heat back out to space. And so that's what we were seeing all the way through June. But then we started drying out. We lost the rain. We had more sun. We were no longer growing the grass. It was starting to get dry. And so all of a sudden our temperatures, and and typically you have to look at climate too. It gets hotter in the months of July and August. I mean, sure. Uh, But uh, that married up to the fact that we all of a sudden started seeing 100s pop up across the area. We had 86 days of 90 plus this year. and. Mm -hmm. 26 of 100 plus. And and the last 90s that we had, we had what a, a trio of them around the last week of October. We did. That's yes. insane. I mean, that, that, that may yeah. have been the latest 90 ever reported here. Well, on Friday, Saturday. Okay. So the 31st, uh, it was cool. We topped out at uh, 56. That was uh, Halloween. On the 30th uh, was cold. We, we were rainy and cool that last weekend of October, mm-hmm. uh, but the weekend prior to that, we set a record high on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday mm-hmm. for 90, 91, and 91 wow. for the city of Maryland. So absolutely, yeah. Uh, part of that, again, just goes to the fact that it was sunny. Uh, and again, whatever was governing the weather that day, southwest winds, downslope, helped to warm us up, put us back mm-hmm. into the 90s. But uh, you can't discount world events mm-hmm. completely. Is, is this something we can expect more of in the years to come, these insanely hot summers? Um, it, it, if we're in an El Nino, absolutely. Or excuse me, if we're in a La Nina, absolutely. Uh, 2011 was a La Nina year. Uh, yes, whenever you have a ridge that's over you during the summer months uh, and uh, the ridge just sets there and you have the sun beating down every single day, we don't get the humidity per se. We have it some, but not as much as we like. Uh, yes, those 100s will happen pretty easy. How are temperatures like this going to affect farmers and ranchers in this region? It's not good. I mean, uh, again, I, I go back to my own personal story. We've gone through 10 years because we have a lot of dry land farming 
and uh, we've lost crops uh, because of lack of moisture, or if it does rain, it comes at the wrong time. <laughs> Let me tell you, the people I talk to uh, that are related to me, they they tell me everything about what's going on and why can't I fix it. And uh, but it's it's due to uh, you know basically uh, the not only are we talking about rain that's hitting the soil, we're talking about the profile of the moisture in the soil at the surface down to maybe six inches. And if a crop's going to grow in that humid, moisture-laden soil, uh, you may have a few days of rain that gets the topsoil and and penetrates maybe down a couple of inches, but then you have the dry wind that comes in after, after it, it evaporates that moisture extremely quick. So for the farmer, for the producer out there, it didn't help them at all, even though they went through a few days of some nice rain. And so you need to build that moisture profile within the soil itself down to a matter of feet to help out when growing those crops. And then help, hopefully Mother Nature will help out and give you the rain at the right time. Uh, you know how it goes. Well, speaking of rain, you know, we had two major rainy periods this summer. Um, and, and both of them, I just managed to leave town right before it happened. <laughs> Good thing, bad thing. I mean, I missed the torrential rains, but came home to jungles that I had to yeah. mow. Uh, they helped resolve a long-term drought in this area. I mean, we got yeah. rid of the burn ban. Absolutely. <laughs> we had that burn ban going for a long time, yeah. but it also caused weeds and grasses Fuel so, for winter fires to grow right. prolifically, right. and here we are. We're we're already headed back into a moderate drought again. I think they yeah. what is it D two they call it or mm-hmm. something like that. Absolutely. I mean, how how can we swing back and forth so much like this? Uh, and and is it possible that the coming El Nino could flip it back around yet again? I would say the probability is there that it will. Again, when you live up here where we live at 3,600 feet, you see the variety of weather because we're typically a dry climate. Uh, you have the bouts of rain, but then you go back to the sunshine, so you start to dry out. And and uh, then, of course, now you add in the late fall months. Uh, you know, our average first freeze is right around the 20th of October, and we have had some hard freezes. So now the grasses that were growing in the summer because of the rain have now gone dormant. They're now the tender for the wildfires. Uh, and again, uh, if it's not raining and cloudy here, cloud cover will have a tendency to slow the wind speeds down. Sunshine drives the wind. And so if you don't have the cloud cover, you have the sun, it's going to be windy. And uh, that's going to then fuel the fire. So the, the the load for the fire becomes higher the more days you go without seeing any rain and the wind continues to blow. And that's why yesterday became a red flag warning for the Texas Panhandle critical wildfire threat because we've gone days on end, many, many, many days without seeing appreciable moisture. And so, uh, plus we've gone through our freeze. So the grasses that were green two weeks ago have gone dormant and now are the kindling for the fire. Well, you mentioned about your family being dry land farmers and not having a whole lot of good luck in, in recent mm-hmm. years. And well, really the best thing that can happen to a dry land farmer, especially one who grows wheat, is right. to have a, a nice blanket of snow yes. over the winter because, you know, snow melts from the bottom Absolutely. and it just trickles down slowly. Yeah, a time um, release moisture yeah, supply. Yeah, it's perfect. It's it's just a drip irrigation system. It is, yes. What, are you, what do you think the odds are that we'll get a blanket that just stays as opposed to melting by 10 o'clock like most times? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, again, uh, the, uh, you you know the the First Nations people, the uh, the the Indian tribes and whatnot we have around here, 
Uh, I believe it's the Ute Indians that referred to the winds coming off the mountains as Chinook winds. And Chinook winds means snow eaters. And so, again, with proximity to the mountains, whenever we get a west wind, we're going to get a downslope. That's going to melt our snow. But if we can keep the cloud cover, that wind mixing down will be mitigated and the humidity will stay around. So that increases the likelihood of keeping that blanket of snow around longer to help the the process of not only getting the trickle-down effect into the crops, but also helping to replenish the Playa Lakes, which help to replenish the aquifer. And so uh, one thing leads to another. But uh, um, again, it uh, it out here, it's a double-edged sword because we are so close to the mountains. We get that downslope. As the wind blows, the temperature goes. Uh, the wind's downslope naturally into the Texas Panhandle. So that's always been a, that's been an age-old problem that we've always had out here. But uh, hopefully we'll have enough days in the winter where that blanket of snow stays around to help the farmers out. And and where do you think all these weather trends are going? Let's pretend we're having this conversation in 30 years, in 2053 in in early November. Mm -hmm. And and the weather averages will have been calculated from 2021 through 2050. What do you you think you'll be talking about then? Let's suppose you're still doing the weather (laughs) at the age of 91. At the age of 91. Oh, my goodness. Uh, My wife will probably divorce me if that's the case. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, you know, you have to use history as a guide because if you're looking at the future and we are seeing now what's going on at this point in time and we've seen the climate warm, we've seen true global warming occurring, uh, no fault of our own, but because of developing nations around the world, uh, just because of the way it works with our earth and our rotation and the way it was meant to be with the physics of the atmosphere, all of those things come into play so you know, I don't want to be pessimistic, but you do have to think in the direction. A lot of times what's going on now will affect your opinion of what you think is going to happen in the future. And so you see what's going on now with the fact that we are seeing the climate change occurring. And to be honest with you, I don't know as, as a species if we'll ever all get together and say, this is what we got to do right now to hopefully mitigate what's going on or turn the clock back. And I don't know if we can. Because there's a lot of, of natural things out there we can't control. Um, but uh, I would say 30 years from now, living out here in the Texas Panhandle, if this is where I'm, I'm living, um, you know, it, it may be, uh, well, I don't want to go there, but I could say it could be starkly different from what it is now. Okay. How's that for an answer? That's a good answer. You're hedging your bet. <laughs> I'm hedging my bet. Absolutely. <laughs> Our guest today has been John Harris, Chief Meteorologist at KAMR Channel 4 in Amarillo. John, give us your best shot. <laughs> okay. My best shot is, well, you know, I think for the first, uh, for the most part, we are going into an El Nino. We are in an El Nino. So I'm predicting right now that we are going to see a wetter than normal winter. Uh, we're not going to see that really cold Arctic air come into play. And I think really our better chances for the heavy snow, uh, we'll probably wait till late February into March and then into April, and then we'll transition into a severe weather season. So I still think there's good things to come with our uh, weather over the next few months. Uh, we just need to hang in there throughout this dry period that we're in right now. And hopefully that weather change will be in our favor and uh, we will be liked by everybody again. Never a dull moment predicting (laughs) Amarillo weather. (laughs) It is so much fun. It is so much fun, but it's the variability that makes it fun. 
You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.